everyone. Welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's pastor and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday's sermon. We're going to pulpit to podcasts. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about James, son of Zebedee. So, Pastor Dan, I think we'll start today by just talking about who James is, in case, you know, anyone doesn't really know. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're just curious, you know? So, James is John's brother. Um, it's likely his older brother. I was, I was reading that. So, what do you think? Was he his older brother? Well, he sure acts like an older brother, <laughs> you know, based on what we did the week before about the whole birth order thing. Yeah. I think we could safely assume that Jimmy Z was the big brother. Jimmy Z. Yeah. Okay. And he's, his name is usually listed first too, which is a good indication that he was probably the, the older brother. So um, Jimmy Z or James uh, was one of the first few disciples who was called by Jesus. So he was like in the boat, basically, when Jesus calls to Peter and Andrew. He's like, hey, James and John, you come too. So um, he's one of the first few. And so he was actually in Jesus's very tight, like inner circle. Mm -hmm. So Jesus's inner circle was James, John, and Peter. Um, and so those three actually got to see a bit more than the other disciples got to. So Jesus invited them to several events that we know of that he didn't invite all the other disciples to. So mm -hmm. they were kind of his homies. Yeah. So Jimmy Z is in this inner circle. Um, and a couple of those things were the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead and the transfiguration um, which I needed a little reminder on that one. So I figured, you know, if someone's a baby Christian and they're listening to this podcast, I should probably define what the transfiguration is because that's one of those kind of $20 church words that doesn't really make much sense. Mm -hmm. So the transfiguration is when it's like an event that uh, the four of them, so Jesus, James, John, and Peter, they go up on this high mountain and suddenly Jesus's appearance is transformed. And the Bible says, quote, so that his face shone like the sun. So he gets really, really bright. He's mm -hmm. transfigured. Okay. And then um, Moses and Elijah actually show up and they talk with Jesus. I didn't really see any points of their conversation. Have you read anything in the Gospels or anything? So I have this theory and we could do a whole podcast on this one someday. <laughs> But because I know we've got a lot that we want to talk about, I'll just give you the short version. So if you recall, Moses has an encounter with God where there's a bush that appears to be on fire, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And Elijah has a similar experience with God. And then you have Jesus having this experience with God and there are other places in the Bible that tell us that whenever God shows up there's a bright light that seems like fire and you know and, and you've heard me say this one before but for the sake of the friends listening I you know so my theory is is that they're not seeing fire 
Moses didn't see a bush that was burning but didn't consume that wasn't consumed. What he was seeing was a hole in the fabric of space time. <clears throat> God lives outside of space and time. God created it. God's all together. He's wholly separate from what he created. So at the end of the day, whenever God opens the door or the portal in space time, when he opens and op makes an opening in space time, the light from heaven blares through and it might look like a star from heaven that shines directly over the baby Jesus at the time when he's the most vulnerable so that he has a bright star right by him all the time. Um, it might be a bush that appears to be burning, but it's actually a hole in the fabric of space-time. In John of Patmos's vision of Jesus, he sees Jesus backlit by this incredibly intense light, probably because Jesus is standing in the doorway to an opening in space-time. And so you kind of get the gist of it. My theory is, is that whenever you see these bright light transfiguration type experiences, what you're seeing is heaven on earth. You're seeing an opening in space time. And, and for everybody who watches Doctor Who, like I do, that's really not that hard to conceive of because it's essentially what the TARDIS is. It's a, it's a mechanism for opening the space-time continuum and stepping outside of it. So bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside. All you Whovians will understand what I just said. And this is not an unusual concept in science fiction, but it's based on science reality. So now that I've said that, the transfiguration is this moment when Jesus is having a chat with Dad on Mount Hermon, probably, and there's an opening in the fabric of space-time, and I find it interesting that each of those other guys that were there, not the apostles, but the Moses and Elijah, had their own experiences, which maybe were happening at exactly that moment. Because Jesus says, the Father and I are one, so Jesus is God in the flesh, and so here we are having this consultation on Mount Hermon and we're having a consultation between people who are within living with within the fabric of space-time with God who's outside of space and time which means that basically God God who says I am could be talking to Moses at the burning bush and Elijah in the same way that he's talking with Jesus all at the same time on the Mount Hermon. And so my theory is, is that maybe Jesus was there when Moses was being told how to relieve the people suffering and get them out of Egypt. And maybe Jesus was there when Elijah was being given a vision of things to come. And, and maybe Jesus is always there because he's God and God is always there because God is outside of all the created order. And so isn't that fascinating? That is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this scene is to tell us that. I think that's the point, really. Huh. I think the point of the transfiguration and the reason that the three apostles were allowed to witness it was so that they could get a sense of the eternal nature of things and the sense of God's realm and God's 
true like like you could look at jesus for a lot of reasons and see him as the messiah but for a lot of people that wasn't enough and they tried to kill him anyway so i wonder how many of them would have killed him if they'd been up on that mountain Hmm. you know like that pretty much seals the deal and for whatever reason known best by god james john and Peter were the only ones that got to witness it first person. Yeah. You mentioned thinking eternally. And I think, too, like thinking genera- generationally as well. And I think that was a little bit of a theme in as to what Jesus was trying to teach James throughout their time together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought of that. Um, but so anyway, back to the transfiguration. Um <laughs> So, yeah, Jesus lights up like the sun, and then basically God's voice just kind of like booms over all of them. And he's like, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's exactly what he says. And the three of them fall on the ground. They're terrified. And Jesus is like, no, no, don't be afraid. It's okay. Um, And I think that was just a really cool scene. Um, You know, that's neat. Just listening to you say that, it reminds me that, that's that's the very essence of what Jesus came to do. No, you don't need to be afraid in the presence of God. I'm here. I'm standing between you and God's glory. Isn't that the essence of our salvation? Yeah, because that was their culture back then. God was smiting people and turning people into salt and doing all of these things that rightfully scared them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'd be scared too if I turned around and my husband was a pillar of salt. Yep. Like, oh my goodness, you know? Um, but yeah, that's Jesus' whole thing. Hey, I'm here. Don't be afraid. It's yep. okay. I got you. But also to show us the majesty of God yep. and the power. Yeah. Um, so that we do have a little bit of a healthy dose of fear there, as we should, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's plenty okay. of people out there that don't have enough fear of God, and one day they're going to have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And I guess it will be a pretty frightening experience. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Yeah. That's kind of like, in a way, existing without thinking that he- that hell is a real place. Yeah. There should be a fear there. Like, if you live believing that hell is a real geographical location that you very well could go to someday. Boy, that's motivation. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I was talking to someone the other day, doesn't go to our church, it was another person out in the public, and they were like, yeah, I don't think hell's a real place. I just really don't think so. Like, oh, huh. That's just a different way to live. Something that I can't relate to. I've always lived that way there's but. always there's an old saying you know that says one of the devil's greatest achievements is convincing people that there is no hell oh and huh. that i mean think about it that's what he means when he says to eve you know you won't die you huh. know he he's in the business of creating counterfeits yeah. so satan wants to convince you that there is no hell because if there's no consequences for your actions and and uh, your attitude towards God, especially, then 
why care? You know, and, and of course, what the Bible tells us, what the apostles want us to understand is, is that through Jesus, we're spared God's just punishment. But we should be motivated to honor God with our lives simply because of the love and, and devotion that we feel to God. You know, I don't try to please God because I need to in order to get into heaven. I try to please God because I love God, because I want to please him. Just like you try to please your husband, and I try to please my wife, and I try to please the members of this congregation, um, not by meeting, you know, their temporal needs or trying to appeal to their flesh, but I try to love them and to show devotion to them by caring about what they care about, you know. So, so the Bible appeals to us in the New Testament not to try to serve God for earthly gain or for some sort of uh, ridiculous need to prove your worthiness to God. He tell, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we do it because we love God, because we've already been saved. You know, where Satan would say there is no hell and therefore you don't need to please God. You don't need to please anybody but yourself. Mm. Yeah. I have this working theory, um, and tell me if this is not biblical, but I think it is. I think it checks out. So my theory is that what if free will extends beyond death? Like what if, so we're living and existing, and I live, I love God. Right. So mm -hmm. I love God and that's why I serve him. And that's why I'm, I serve his people. And this is why I just, I just want to show the love of God to people. And so what if heaven for me, God says, well, I love you too. Come spend time with me eternally. Okay. So then you have these people who don't love God. Maybe they just, I don't know, live for themselves or do whatever and they're like oh well, I'm a good person so whatever you know I'm just gonna be good and being good is what it's about okay well what if the afterlife for them is just okay what if it's just good you know what if it's like gray or something and it's just like okay you know and what about all those people who say oh well heaven isn't real and God isn't real and once we die it's just blackness well okay maybe that is the reality for them you know like, what if, what if God's like, okay, you believe that? I'll give it to you. I don't mm. know. I just think about that sometimes. Well, I, I'm just, I'm grinning at you because uh, you've probably heard me say this because I, I, I recommend C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, all the time. And if you've never read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, he gives a really remarkable treatment to the whole idea of life after death. And it's much like what you've described. Really? And, you know, now, uh, without giving a summary of the book, because, again, that's a whole other topic, um, but deep down in the bowels of this uh, podcast channel, Knowing God with Heart and Mind, there's a whole Bible study that my daughter Bethany and I did a few years ago based on the great divorce. So cool. feel free to go check that out if you want to know a much more in-depth version of this. But in the great divorce, the people live in this gray place 
that gets darker the further away you move from a certain point and grayer the closer you move to a certain point. And in, in this gray zone, um, there's a bus stop that people try to get on the bus and it's your classic double-decker British bus, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole fascinating story about who gets on, how they get on, why they get on, why they don't get on, who they're fighting over seats. You know, it's, it's like the gray zone is very human. And they ride this bus to a place that I guess I would describe as the edge of heaven, you know, and then they start walking and they're, First, they're just overwhelmed by grass that hurts to walk on. And there, there are fruits growing on trees that they're so heavy that people can't pick them up. And, and, and eventually, for C.S. Lewis's character, I mean, he never names him, but I guess it's him. And, and we had, in our Bible study that Bethany and I did, we just started calling him Jack because that's actually what everybody who knew him called him. He, he had decided when he was a little kid that he'd rather be called Jack. He didn't give a reason. He just said, I think I'd rather be called Jack. And so even though he's Clive Staples Lewis, everybody who knew him just called him Jack. Huh. So Jack is making his way into heaven. He, he encounters a guide who is a person that he revered quite a bit, um, who then uh, is kind of guiding him through this journey, which ultimately leads to the center of, of heaven where God is. And the further you get from the edge, the more you grow and the closer you resemble all the other things that are there. And, and the closer you get to the center of heaven, the more you become acclimated to the grass and the fruit and, 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 but along the way, he encounters different kinds of people who are resisting going closer to God and to the center of heaven. And so it's a really fascinating story, and it's a wonderful take. And, and, and Jack goes out of his way to say at the beginning, I'm not writing this to give you, you know, a definitive explanation of heaven. I'm just writing this as a speculative work of my imagination. But this, this book has transformed my view of life after death, transformed it. And it comes back to this, when you die, whatever is not complete on earth is not complete in heaven. And the question is, are you gonna finish? Or what are you gonna finish? And the next question is, is what happens on Judgment Day? And while there is no space or time in heaven, there's a sense that God hasn't risen from his throne to launch this judgment. But if you're in heaven, it's already happened. You know, so I, that's a whole other topic. But, mm -hmm. but, but I think that basically what I'm trying to say is, is that your theory has a lot of similarity to, to Jack's theory. 
And then there's just the reality that, um, you know, I'm probably about a month ago, right before we started this podcast, I had said in Sunday service that, that, you know, there's a lot of ways you can approach your relationship with Christ. But the question you have to ask yourself is, is when God judges me, what's my answer going to be? Why, why should God forgive you and, and let you be with him for all eternity? What, what's your answer going to be? Um, and it's going to be how you respond to Jesus. And so maybe there will be people who have never heard the gospel. And they might be, you know, uh, indigenous people somewhere who have never been exposed to Western culture and have never heard anything about Christianity. Or it might be people who have been in church all their lives and they've never been exposed to the gospel because there's plenty of that too. Plenty of people going to church all their lives and don't hear the true gospel and never really get a chance to encounter the real Jesus because the enemy has been so effective at putting out the counterfeits. So it seems to me that God's best effort of judgment, and I'm, it's assuming that I can imagine God's justice, like, like, you know, I'm a human being, how can I imagine pure justice? But if I could imagine a God who's just, I imagine a God who might say, it all really comes down to whether you understand who I am and what I've done for you through my son. And if you get it and you embrace it, come on in. The water's great, you know? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you can't accept it and you can't let go of your pride and your narcissism and your devotion to your flesh, you probably won't then either. And if you think back to like the great divorce by Lewis, it's like he meets people like that in heaven who just can't let go of the flesh and they can't let go of their pride. And so they end up never quite making it to the place where God dwells. So judgment, I guess, really is going to be something like that. And I think that is the most fair you know, because, but I also know from what the Bible tells me that there's a lot of evil, lots and lots of evil, and it comes from God's enemy. And that there are a lot of people and people groups and societies on earth that are inherently evil because they're ruled by evil spirits. And I think God will be perfectly just with them, but there probably won't be a lot of discussion about what you think of Jesus because they've already pretty much declared that. And it wasn't good because the book of Revelation tells us in particular that God will severely punish his enemy and all of those who are devoted to his enemy, which is Satan. So... I don't know. I think I, well, no, it goes along with your theory. Yeah, yeah, that was good. And I really enjoy these like musings because it just reminds me of a, um, a video I saw one time. I want to say it was on TikTok, but I don't watch TikTok, so it probably wasn't there. I don't know. Anyway, it was this uh, younger girl. She's probably a millennial. And 
<laughs> if anyone's in Gen X listening to this, they're like, ah, oh, they're old. <clears throat> anyway, so there's this young girl, and she talks about how she used to be, like, this really strong Christian, and she wasn't anymore. And she said the crux for her, the... <laughs> crux means cross that's mm-hmm. funny i didn't even try that um but the thing that took her out i guess of christianity you could say is because she heard someone tell her that if her friends don't believe in jesus they're going to hell and she was like well i love my friends and they're good people why would they go to hell that doesn't make sense to me And so I really like what we're talking about here because it's like God is just. And if the crime doesn't match the punishment, that's not just, right? Right. I mean, I'm actually asking, right? Like that that makes sense to me. No, um, I, I think it makes perfect sense. And and it comes down to the fact that that the church, I mean, this is where it gets a little complicated. Uh in my mind, you, you know, you talk about amusing. I mean, if I were to muse on this again, it could take a long time, but, but basically, you know, the world is so full of counterfeits and Satan has skillfully crafted all of these counterfeits. And, and you've heard me use this phrase a lot. Most of the people around this church family are used to my shtick. They've heard me say things like this, but for a counterfeit to be effective, it's got to be pretty darn convincing. So think about all the people who have gone to church all their lives, all the people who have been in generational church families, you know, that, that, that have been basically buying a counterfeit. They've, they've been, you know, wearing a knockoff Rolex. They're, they're, they're using counterfeit currency and it's so convincing that they don't understand that it doesn't have any real value. And again, you know, like everybody can be a victim at some point and everybody can be a perpetrator. It just kind of depends on your perspective. But at the end of the day, that's why I think God's justice will include absolute truth and your opportunity to e- either embrace it or reject it. And that settles things in your mind if you're thinking about judgment day or maybe even life after death but what's really sad is is that there's you know jesus said that he came that we might have abundant life and there's a way that he says it that suggests that what he means is right now and so the the truth is is that that friend rejects the church they reject a counterfeit they reject a so-called christian who's not representing christ very well at all you know according to the bible if you are a born-again believer filled with the holy spirit you are in effect christ you're the body of christ now first thing any real true believer is going to tell you is, is i'm not a very good representation of christ but i'm trying and so there's a sense that that we are here to be christ to the world and yet we have to have the humility to admit that we do it poorly but what we often do as christians is we assume that we're doing it really well and everybody should be like us which is really kind of the way the enemy thinks (laughs) Mm. you know that that i can do god better than god 
Um, that got him kicked out of heaven, by the way, but hey. Sure did. He's like, I'm going to start my own kingdom. <laughs> it's so, going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like if there's one thing I wish people could hear is, yes, there are people in church buildings like this one who get it. The church has really burned you. There are people who are calling themselves Christians who don't behave the way Christ wants them to behave at all. They are whitewashed tombs, Jesus called them. They were a brood of vipers, John the Baptist says. They were, uh, they were people who ruled over other people with an iron thumb of oppressive religion, and God hates oppression. And their law of Moses was constructed as God was delivering them from oppression. And then they take the same law of Moses and turn it into a med method of oppression so that people who are weak are made weaker and they're, they're made to suffer, you know. And, and so the enemy's really good. The enemy is really good. How is it that the law of Moses by the time of Jesus has turned into a tool for oppression? And if you look at it, it's really the same thing that Satan did in the Garden of Eden when he gave them a tree that looked better than the tree of life and said, oh, no, God doesn't mean what God says. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again. And the best reason for us to find truth and love and to make a church where someone who's been burned by Christians, so-called, can come and find healing is because it gives abundant life on earth. It gives them a chance to be with other Christians. And, you know, like, if all of us are the body, if all of us born-again believers are part of the body of Christ, and I consider myself you know, not an ideal representative Christ, but of Christ. And you consider yourself not an ideal representative Christ, but of Christ, but we are very different types of people. It stands to reason that if you're in a group of people who are all filled with the Holy Spirit, all the body of Christ, collectively, they make a pretty good image of Christ. You know what I mean? You ever seen one of those mosaics where they're made up of thousands of little pictures of individuals, but when you step back, you see Jesus, Yeah. right? Like, that's it. You know, you can't see Jesus in the face of the individual, but when you see the body of Christ in the faces of his born-again, I was going to say sons and daughters, Jesus' brothers and sisters, God's sons and daughters, when you step back far enough, you can see Jesus. And so we need to be a collective body of Christ, not an individual body of Christ. Otherwise, the impression you have of Christ is only as good as I can make it. But collectively, we have the, the capacity to be the body of Christ. And that's what Christ intended when he gave the Holy Spirit to what was then called, you know, the way. But then it becomes what we call the church. The ecclesia is the body of Christ filled with his spirit. And we have this cumulative effect that makes Jesus visible to the world. And, you know, Satan's just deluded that. I mean, literally, like, you know, if you have, if you have a really potent stock for your soup 
you know, but somebody comes along and pours a pitcher full of water in it, and then it just tastes like icky water, yeah. you know, and that's what Satan's done to the church. Mm. Yeah, I'm over here smiling because you're talking about being the body of Christ, and uh, it just, it reminded me of a story that my husband loves to tell, and they went to Catholic church growing up, and he used to talk with his siblings about, like, right before communion, they would be like, they would be like, well, which which part of his body are you going to get today? And they would be like, well, I don't want his big toe, or like, I don't want his ear, or whatever. And they would just, you know, every week, I, I guess, so the story goes. And uh, I'm just smiling because I'm like, well, that makes me think, well, what part of the body am I? If we're the body of Christ, you know, listener, ask yourself, like, what? What part of the body am I? Where are my strengths? How can I show God to the world? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of was thinking about that and smiling and thinking about little kids and how they think about how we're eating the physical body of Jesus. And Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of religious tradition that will just naturally be imparted to children. You know, I heard something about a month ago that that I hadn't really thought about this way, but you don't have to tell a 16-year-old who's just getting their driver's license that in America we drive on the right side of the road. They've known it since they've been in the car seat in the back of the vehicle. They've never seen their family drive on any other part of the road, so they just know. And there are so many things like that in our lives, and our religion is one of them. And so, you know, they internalize this, well, if it's the body of Christ, what part is it? You know, because they're taking it literally, and someone has to explain to them what we mean when we say that. But what if the people who are explaining don't know any better, and they can't explain it either? And so... They end up saying, well, that's just because that's the way we've always done it. That's what we know. And so many, many people, this is why I said everybody could be a victim if they want to be, and everybody could be a perpetrator if they want to be, because some of the things that we believe, we only know to, we, because we're conditioned to. We didn't, we, we didn't consciously reject Christ. We just never met the real Christ in the first place. And why didn't we meet the real Christ? Because the person that taught us about him didn't know him either. And maybe the person who taught them didn't know him either. And, you know, Satan can, he can just put a little bit of poison in the water and then it disperses. And so you have generations of people who have been taught about a They've been taught a religion about Jesus, but they've never been encouraged to have a relationship with Jesus. And so that's why I say on Judgment Day, God's going to have a lot of work to do just to have people who thought they knew Jesus find out what he really is all about and who he really is. And and a lot of them are going to probably fall on their faces and repent. And, and, and the sad thing is, is that they will also have to deal with the fact that they spent their whole time on earth not knowing Jesus. And what would my life have been like had I known him? Wow. And what impact might I have made for him in the world had I really known him? You know, um, the Bible tells us there's no tears and there's no suffering in heaven, and, and or at least that's the way I tend to interpret it. 
But I've often thought, especially since my father died, I've thought, you know, I think that in order to be completely at peace in heaven, we would have to deal with certain things. We would have to reconcile our accounts, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, forgiveness, you know, I've used this illustration for, for, for forgiveness uh, in numerous different ways at different times, but forgiveness is like canceling a debt. So if you're holding something against me, it's like you're saying, I owe you something. Like you lent me $10 and I never paid it back and now it's collected interest and you owe me, I owe you even more. And so you're holding this against me and you're saying, I'm never going to forgive you because you haven't paid me back. And forgiveness is saying, I've decided to cancel the debt. You don't owe me anything anymore. And you've released them from a debt. A lot of times they don't even know they owe you because a lot of times you're forgiving people for things that they don't even know that they deserve forgiveness from or need forgiveness from. But you can take that wherever you want with it today. But but for this particular illustration, it seems like when you get to heaven, in order to really enjoy the bounty of heaven, you have to empty your pockets, so to speak. You have to, you've got to pull all those IOUs out of your pocket and deposit. Like, like if you're going into, if you're going into heaven, kind of like you would go into the airport, you know, you got to empty everything into the changed thing and you got to be completely purged of anything that can't be in heaven, you know, just like you can't have certain things on the airplane, right? You know, and so you do all of that and then they go, yep, now you can come in. You know, I, I don't know. This is, this is like your theory, you know, I, I don't know that that's how it is, but, but maybe you got to do a little crying in heaven in order to really enjoy the benefit of heaven. I, well, I'll let you know. I probably won't be able to let you know, but <laughs> I would if I could. Right. <laughs> or you'd right. let me know if you get there first, you know, but... <laughs> But, but I just, I think about that. It's like, you know, if you see things as only you can when you've been freed from the flesh, you've got to deal with some stuff, I would think. I, Lord will have to let me know on that one someday. But Yeah. As you're talking, I keep thinking about pride. Yeah. And you said the phrase, when you're freed from the flesh... And I think even just in your analogy of like reaching into your pockets and emptying out past debts or anything, that takes a certain removal of pride. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I can just picture someone being like, well, I don't have anything in my pockets. There is nothing in there, mm -hmm. right? I don't owe anybody anything. I have lived a great life. I know Jesus. But it, it takes that checking yourself of, now, wait a minute. I am human. Mm -hmm. We're all human. We all have stuff in our pockets. And so, I don't know. I just keep thinking about pride and, and what that would take to be able to do that. And I think that is a characteristic of a strong person. Yeah. Being able to set aside pride and flesh. And Anyway, um, for those of you who have thought, boy, they are so far off from James... We're not really though. I don't think no, we are. I mean, these are the very, these are the very things that the apostles dealt with every day. Yeah. I mean, you can read it in their letters, those whose records we have. Um, you know, I think the most important thing that I 
addressed about James in the sermon was his incredibly good leadership at a time when the church really needed it, in Jerusalem in particular. And so last week's message, you know, because I got a lot of props the previous week because I was very charismatic and and you know, standing on my toes is one of the things people will say. Well, when he gets up on his toes, we know he's really fired up. Well, I was flat-footed in talking about leadership this week. And I'm just as passionate about leadership, but just doesn't come with the same sort of fire. Because leadership is sort of a, it, it's like, you know, um, God, just like in all parts of life, God gets things done with leaders. And to a certain extent, we're all leaders and we all have certain responsibilities for leadership. But some of us are put in charge of bigger projects, so to speak, you know. And James was a guy who gave church leadership at a time when the apostolic tradition hinged on what the guys in Jerusalem said. Because Jerusalem was the heart of the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition because it was... Christian tradition that was birthed in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, you know. And so the sense that the church in Jerusalem, which was led by James, had to weigh in on things in order for them to be considered doctrinal, put a great deal of responsibility on him. And so he had the capacity then, apparently, to think and reason in the way that we've been talking. You know, because mm -hmm. as you know, I'm a big believer in critical thinking and I'm always driving people towards that like be a critical thinker that's why this podcast and and this podcast channel I have to be clear on that we're the echo podcast but this channel is called holiness of heart and mind or God heart and mind and it really goes down to just because it's important that you're a thinking Christian faith is an important thing but informed faith is just as beautiful and and uh God loves to reason with us. Yeah. Um, you talked about leadership, and I think James was an excellent leader in Jerusalem. He was also, he also taught us a lot about leadership when Jesus was alive and walking with them. And I'm thinking like specifically of the scene where his nickname, Son of Thunder, was born mm -hmm. um, and was generated. And I love this scene, and I think it's because The Chosen. I mean, I'm just going to keep coming back to it, but I just love this scene. Um, and it's – so, listener, if you haven't seen it, pause the podcast, go to YouTube, check it out, type in Sons of Thunder, The Chosen, watch it. It's three minutes long, and then come back. <laughs> so um, – And this, welcome back. And welcome back, yes. Uh, so in the scene, these – uh, it's James and John and Jesus, and they're walking down some road, and uh, there's a Samaritan group of people, and they are just mean to them. Like, they spit on them, and they're just, they call them dogs, I think. Um, and James and John get so upset, so upset. They're ready to, like, physically harm these people. Jesus has to actually hold them back with his two arms, and he was like, calm down until the people leave. And then he, he addresses it, and he's like, what is going on? And they were like, they were like, Jesus, you called us to be leaders and you've given us these powers and we want to send fire down from the heavens and rain it down on them. And he's like, what? 
<laughs> because they were mean to you like these are these are brothers like they believe in me and they haven't even seen my miracles why else would they be mean to us because they believe that I am who I say I am you know and he he's very kind and he kind of walks them through this process of like stepping back from their moment of like fiery zeal and they're like we want to use our powers to harm them and he's like that is not <laughs> That is not what I'm calling you to do. Yeah. That is not what I want from my leaders, and here's why. And I just love that scene so much. He talks about how he had them um, like plot some land and, and why, and then he talks about how they should be thinking in generations. And, mm -hmm. and Jesus just pauses, and, and he chuckles, and he's like, you wanted to rain fire down from the heavens. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this moment where they're like, yeah, well... When you put it that way, it doesn't sound that great. Um, yeah, about <laughs> but, that. <laughs> but we learned that about leadership is like when you're in this certain role, I don't know. I feel like maybe some people think, oh, I should have this special thing and be able to do these special things. And we get fired up about certain things. And Jesus says, no, it's about me. It's about me. Yeah. It's okay to get angry about certain things. Sure. But I was hearing you talk about that in the hallway earlier. It's okay to get angry about certain things. Jesus did in the temple with the merchants. But make sure it's for the right reasons. Yeah. And the right reason is for God. Get angry about the things that God got angry about. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, if there's such thing as righteous anger, it would be anger that mirrors God's anger. And, and make sure you understand what that means because it's so easy to buy the counterfeit again. Um, God is angry at oppression. God dislikes chaos, which is of the devil. Uh, God despises death and decay, and Satan loves creating death and decay. And, you know, it's hard for me to say this without thinking about what's in the news this week. And... Um, all I can tell you is, is that my heart has been breaking for the people in Israel. And I will not say anything too controversial here, but I will just tell you that if Satan is in the death and the decay and the chaos and the oppression, then a horde from hell marched into Israel a couple of days ago. And they left in their wake death and decay, chaos, and oppression. They took and destroyed, and they did it in such a way that it felt like, like the gates of hell opened up and the horde poured out. And I'm not going to debate the rightness about Israel or the wrongness about their policy towards Palestinians. I'm not going to get into that right this minute. All I'm going to say is, is, did you see the death and the decay? Did you see, you know, I heard a guy describing that until they could secure the communities that have been affected, they couldn't collect the dead. And after three days in the desert, collecting the dead became a much more difficult process because of decay. Hmm. Think about that, death, decay, where there once was life and order, 
These are neighborhoods that look just like the ones I live in, the ones you live in. And they were turned from something like cosmic order to death and decay and chaos. And at the end of a knife or a gun. And that's hell on earth. And so if you ask me, that, that would be something God would be righteously angry about. And for God's wrath to pour down on such things doesn't surprise me. And the Bible's pretty explicit that many times God exercises judgment through other nations, through the acts of, of war, I guess you could say. You know, sometimes when God's judging Israel in the Old Testament, he lets their enemies have their way with them for a while. Somebody might argue that that's what happened yesterday or this week. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. But one thing I know for sure is the Bible said we should look for things like this as signs of the times. Signs that we are near the return of Christ. And if you've been, if you've been a little uncertain or maybe you've been rattled a little because of our talk about counterfeits and whether you really know Jesus, um, it would be wise to try to make sure you get to know him because when he returns, you would like to recognize him. And I trust in his judgment and his grace and his mercy. But I believe that you can have a sense of security in him if you understand who he is and what he will do in the times that we are facing. And um, I really just pray that people listening to this if they're not sure they really know who Jesus is, you know what? It's as simple as get down on your knees and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the real you. He'll hear that prayer, and he will help you to know him for who he really is. If you want to use your Bible, then open the Gospel of John and just start reading, and you will get to know him. And... When people say they know Jesus, it's not that he sits in my office and talks to me like you are. I have never had that experience with him, although this picture on the wall that's right behind you keeps smiling at me. <laughs> and I often find myself, when I'm saying the right things or it seems to be the right things, I glance up at that picture and I swear I can see him winking at me saying, go get him, tiger, you know, or whatever. It's, it's really weird. It is a picture of Jesus. Yeah, those it's a of picture of Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we should put that in the show notes. But he, um, it's not that I can say all the time that he and I have this, you know, weekly coffee time together or whatever. I, I mean, I, I, people can say things like that. But for the sake of the ones that are really struggling to believe, all I want you to know is, is that you can get to know someone in a very personal way, simply becoming by becoming so familiar with the things they say and the things they do that you feel like you know them. And a lot of people could say that about Jesus if they've just read the Gospels or watched The Chosen. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about The Chosen is, is if people will watch that series, they will get a sense that they know Jesus. 
Perfect. Perfect. Praise God. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of ways you can get to know him. But you need to know the difference between him and the counterfeit only so that you can discern which voices to listen to and which to ignore. Right. I think that about does it for this week. <laughs> that was good stuff. Heavy stuff, but good stuff. Yeah, but this is what we do. You know, Adrian yeah. and I, if you all don't know it, we've been having these kinds of chats for as long as we've known each other. And uh, I'm, love, I'm, I'm blessed to have these kinds of chats with lots of people in, in this church family, in this community. And, and yet Adrian is such a... a, a a bright-minded person who's thinking and and just really exploring her faith and she she asked me great questions and so one day we just said why aren't we recording this yeah and here we are so we hope that it feels like you're you know it's funny because where we're recording this there's an empty chair um i hope you feel like you're in the empty chair because she's sitting in one i'm sitting in one and there's an empty chair between us and i hope you feel like you're in that chair me too. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, friend. I think that's it for today. We'll see you next week. All right. God bless you. Bye.